0: So a lot of what I want people to do is come experience the neurosciences. Mm. They know that when they become doctors and interact with neurologists and neurosurgeons, that they will feel more at peace and understand what we do.
1: That was Mr. Siraj Siraj, consultant neurosurgeon at the Royal Victoria Infirmary in newcastle upon tyne In this Tease Neuro podcast, we tackle neurosurgery and specifically some neurosurgical emergencies. We find out a little bit about what makes Coda Aquinas syndrome Coda Aquinas syndrome, and learn that litigation for Caudal syndrome is far more common than the syndrome itself. He also talk about subarachnoid hemorrhage, how to investigate and manage it, and finish up with Suresh's main passion in life, neurooncology. oncology So um, what we're going to do, like, just to begin with, I thought, as, as a nice little preamble, maybe, was um, just to talk about how you ended up in neurosurgery. Um, like it's a bad thing, you know, <laughs> how did you end up here? But, um, you know, so where, where did you kind of like do your training, Suresh? How did you end up in, in Newcastle?
0: So in terms of the epiphany, that was when I was 13 years old. No. It was, yeah. Um, so I was 13 and at that stage I wanted to be a, a lawyer. And uh, my brother wants to be a doctor. And he said to me that uh, lawyers were failures and medics were obviously successful people. And I kind of thought to myself, well, what on earth and medicine would actually interest me? And neurosurgery was the only thing that, came, that I came up with. There was an, and the registrar all be far too young for this. But there was, you may remember, Archie, there was a, a prudential advert back in the 90s where there was this kid who was jumping up and down as a punk rocker. And uh, he said, "I want to be a brain surgeon when I'm older." Mm. And I thought, "That's the clincher. That's that's the deal."
1: <laughs> so um, I want to hang out with that guy.
0: <laughs> I then looked into a bit more, and I think I was slightly depressed when I was told by my mother that I had to do medicine. I thought, "Well, how am we going to do that for five years? Yeah. I don't know anything about science." Um, so ironically, I'm now a brain surgeon, and my brother's a lawyer. So uh, it just goes to show how uh, life life plays out.
1: Full cycle. Um,
0: So I went to Leeds Medical School. I did all my training in Leeds. Um, I did a medical doctorate as well in Leeds. Got to senior Reg stages and there wasn't anything around Leeds at that point. I think it was probably a good time to go. Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
0: And uh, a local job came up in Newcastle. That was in 2011. Uh, Came over. My uh, wife absolutely loved it and we've stayed ever since. And uh, we live in Wylam in a small village in the Time Valley. It's absolutely idyllic.
1: Yeah, very nice out that way, isn't it? That's great, and um, yeah, and so at no point, so you had this early epiphany for neurosurgery, uh, but at, at no point in your training did your, did your faith wobble? You weren't, you no know, straying from the path? No, I mean,
0: no? there were. So I trained in the era where, as a senior house officer, you did various surgical jobs. And I thoroughly enjoyed my transplant job. I thoroughly enjoyed my general surgical job. Um, and I was offered, you know, future registrar jobs in those, but it, my, I was always on the ball in terms of neurosurgery. I just couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. I was very, and still am, very OCD.
1: Right. that's so, a
0: though. What,
1: what is it that is kind of attractive about neurosurgery then to your personality or <laughs> your psyche? <laughs>
2: Um,
0: I think a lot of it is the fact that we don't know most of the answers.
2: Hmm.
0: I suppose it's the same with neurology as well. Um, is that, you know, when you consider the history of neurosurgery, it's still pretty much about 100 years old. When you go from, you know, Cushing, you're talking about. Heart, um, can you guys hear me okay, by the way? I keep getting signs saying my internet connection's unstable.
1: It's a little bit glitchy, but we'll cope. All
0: right, okay. When you live in the countryside, the, the internet's not great, I'm afraid. It's probably
1: a pigeon sitting on the broadband somewhere.
0: Uh, that's a, that's a, that's a, um, and I think it's because we've still got a lot of questions to answer. Mm. And I wanted to spend my life being intellectually stimulated. Um, but also on a more practical level because I like to do things with my hands all the time Mm. obviously surgery was a more attractive option to me Uh, but you know when you take other disciplines everything's refining the same thing whereas in neurosurgery it's it's about defining new frontiers and that's what I love about it.
1: It's a sort of real sort of gestalt moment I think kind of you know are you a physician or are you a surgeon it's kind of like it's it's a marmite thing, isn't it, for a lot of folk? You know, and I, I had quite the opposite epiphany when I scrubbed for the first time as a medical student. It just went no, nope, absolutely not. Whatever is going on here, I want no part of it. Um, yeah. So it's it's sort of interesting. Um, and yeah, and I was I sort of wasn't sure really what your kind of subspecialty then within neurosurgery was, uh, Suresh?
0: Yeah, so it's neuro oncology. Mm. Um, so I, I've got ai mean, half of my practice is, is clinical oncology I also do a lot of research as well uh, which stems from my my doctor days uh, but CNS tumors that's my main area
1: okay so uh, I mean in terms of how we sort of structured these things before we've sort of had half a mind to uh, medical students who have kind of like a keen interest in neuroscience in general um, other people listening might be sort of junior doctors who might be thinking maybe neuro. Um, and then obviously our registrars, who um, you know, it, where well, it's too late for them. You know. Never too late. Never too
2: late.
1: <laughs> They're committed now, they can't get out of it. Um, so I suppose, yeah, I was just trying to think, you know, from, from a, an undergrad point of view, because I saw on your on your Twitter handle, so to speak, that your keen teacher at uh, undergrad and postgrad level, um, and I was wondering um, you know, if you had like carte blanche for the undergrad curriculum, just somebody said, Siraj, we're starting from scratch, neurosurgery, you've got you know x amount of time what what would be like what would be your kind of big ticket stuff that you'd want our undergrads? to have clear in their minds about neurosurgery?
0: I I think it's, it's extraordinarily difficult because neurosciences, you know, neurosurgery and neurology is a very niche area. And Mm. let's face it, when you look at the demographics and what, what most people end up becoming after medical school, it is more into your community based, your journalist type areas, general practice, you know, into those fields. So it is really, the onus is really upon getting people trained up for, to be journalists to start with, then go into other areas thereafter. So we're the best one in the world, you know, I, 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 although I'd love to have exposure set in stone, it's never really going to happen. So what we do and what I do in particular is that when we've engaged, and quite a lot of my colleagues have done this as well, we've engaged with the Newcastle Medical Society I've done talks of Newcastle Surgical Society. There's a Newcastle Medical School Neurology Neurology, Neurosurgery Society as well. Mm -hmm. So it's about going out and having conversations with them and being able to talk to them about their specialty, about our specialties. When I was a third year medical student, I did a special study module with a lovely chap called Paul Mm -hmm. Schumer in in Leeds, and that really cemented everything for me. And I made the decision then that when I was a neurosurgeon, I would ensure that we could do the same. And so I take on every year, lots of medical students who do do projects and a lot of my colleagues do the same thing as well. It's about trying to make sure that we can, you know, try and incorporate people in projects with us to get that exposure because we we clearly can't do that within the medical school curriculum. Mm. In terms of your, your, what's going to take a message for medical students is to have an understanding, appreciation of what we do. And I'd like that for all doctors, even junior doctors as well because i think you know neurology neurosurgery neurosciences are seen pretty much as specialties that live within ivory towers mm. uh, aloof from you know normal medicine with personality profiles which are uh, one of the better you know uh, better phrase on the spectrum I don't think most <laughs> of us are actually fairly okay you know uh, <laughs> i'm probably fairly ocd but you know we are You know, you would be able to tell who we are by looking at us on the street. So a lot of what I want people to do is come experience neurosciences. Mm. They know that when they become doctors, and interact with neurologists and neurosurgeons, that they will feel more at peace and understand what we do.
1: So what is, I mean, so moving on then from that and going forward a bit. So like, what's a typical day? I know like days vary, but you know, I'm just kind of interested in, you know, like I get up, I have my coffee. I get my, you know, I cycle to work or whatever it is, but you know, like, so what's like, what's a relatively typical day for you there? Uh, and that
0: it, unfortunately, you know, we all have set job plans in terms of, we all have set clinics. We all have set theater sessions every week and we have on calls as well. So if I'm in theater, I'll be in work just before eight o'clock. I'll be seeing my pre-op patients. We'll do a team brief at half eight where we talk about the list for the day. We talk about what's required. We talk about any anesthetic concerns. Uh, We'll then do however many operations there are on the list. And at the end of that day, we'll then do a team debrief where we talk about what went good and what went bad. Mm. And in terms of a a clinic day, you know, you turn up by about half eight in the morning, leave after five o'clock, do the clinics. The thing about neurosurgery, though, and it's kind of a double edged sword. Yes, we do like a degree of... Uh, regularity we we need to know what's what's going on and I suspect a lot of that's just an age thing for most of us Um, but equally the thing that's attractive about neurosurgery is that anything can happen as well Mm. and that's what I still like about the on calls is that absolutely anything can come through that door Um, and you know I will sometimes get scrubbed up for a nice trauma case because actually it's it's quite nice Mm. Um, so anything can happen we do like consistency but equally when a curveball comes you know, it works
1: well. I suppose I, um, I have like this kind of clear idea about my job plan, which is very sort of outpatient-based in the main, because I, I do a lot of movement disorders. So like half my week, half my clinics are kind of Parkinson's and related things like that. And I have these kind of little sort of nebulous general neurology clinics, which is basically anything, epilepsy, movement disorders, brainstem, spinal cord, MS, um, neuropathy, myosin, like it's a bit of everything. It's basically a tour of the nervous system every clinic in the general neurology is, is is the neurosurgical kind of setup similar um you know do you have like a general neurosurgical clinic is that does that does that such a thing even exist
0: well so the day of the general surgeon has pretty much the general neurosurgeon is pretty much gone right and for the last 10 15 years um people have taken more uh, more of a subspecialist uh, interest um uh, so my phone keeps going off as well
1: yeah. <laughs> that's all right
0: it never stops even. 8.20 my registrars are texting me. Oh.
1: Um,
0: so the days of a general surgeon to be able to cover everything from paediatrics to vascular to, to general adult has gone. Even, so if you take something like spine, we have guys who do complex spine. So these are patients who have a, uh, a tumour, a trauma which needs fixing or some kind of infection, and that's handled by the orthopedic and the neurosurgical complex spine guys. Uh, people like myself who do predominantly neuro-oncology, then you have the vascular neurosurgeons, you also have the paediatric neurosurgeons. And obviously with paediatrics, there's no overlap because, you know, with natural recommendations, people are seen by paediatric neurosurgeons are not by a general adult neurosurgeon. So for my clinics, half of my clinics are pretty much purely cranial. Um, so they're consistently main of tumours, full-up tumours, patients with CSF disorders, BIHs, Chiari's, NPHs. Mm. Uh, But I also have my other half of my clinic, which is a general clinic. Now, although it's called a general clinic, these patients are by and large patients with spinal problems. So these patients either have a radiculopathy um, or a myelopathy from either cervical or a a lumbar lumbar pathology. Um, But of course, there are uh, complex spinal neurosurgeons who will just purely see spinal patients and will see Mm. the complex spinal patients with them as well. So the day of the general neurosurgeon has gone. Is that a good thing? Probably because it does hone in our specialist interests. It also means that you're no longer, well, we should, well, not no longer, but we are moving away from low volume surgery.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, at the end of the day, it's about trying to concentrate skills. It's quite, you know, you shouldn't be doing one or two cases a year badly when actually you should be doing 20, 30 cases a year well. And this is also about you know, what's, what's right for the patient. Should a patient be seeing somebody that's done one or two cases in their life or somebody does it all the time? So we've gone from general neurosurgery to subspecialist interest within departments and I suspect in the next 10, 20 years, we'll be looking at regional networks. And hmm. you know, it's, it's more because some of the more senior neurosurgeons will have retired, their expertise would have gone as well. And we'll be looking at regional networks to try and support the very niche areas.
1: Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, So it, it is slightly different and I guess different centers are different as well. Neurologists will do, will work in different ways. We, we still have a sort of general specialist split, at least down in Teesside. Mm. Um, I wanted to have a think about neurosurgical emergencies for a minute, because obviously, like, you know, we, we want to try and take people through a couple of kind of how to do it sort of uh, approaches. Um, when I was kind of thinking about this ahead, ahead of time, I was thinking, I wonder if what I think is a neurosurgical emergency might be different (laughs) from what a neurosurgeon views as a neurosurgical emergency. So, um, you know, thinking about like a safari big five, like if you're on safari and you want to see like, you know, elephants and lions and all that kind of stuff, like what's your kind of neurosurgical safari big five of of like proper full-on emergency stuff? Like, please ring me directly.
0: Right. So... Um, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, that's okay. an emergency. A aquina syndrome, that's okay. an emergency. Uh, a cerebral bleed, whether it's extradural, subdural, intracerebral, that's an emergency. Uh, a patient who's gone off from acute hydrocephalus, whether it's used a block shunt, that's also an emergency as well.
1: Okay. So I suppose again, so there's their vascular emergencies, which mm-hmm. kind of most of us are familiar with and dread. Um, you've got your kind of spinal compression emergencies of which Coda yeah. Kwan, I guess makes up a, the majority. Um, and then there are pressure related emergencies. including pressure related. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that makes, yeah. Okay. So we're on the same page. That's good. Um, <laughs> in that regard, um,
0: well, it also the, the hydrocephalics, the ones who, you know, a patient with a shunt block shunt, they can go rapidly, they need to be decompressed or somebody with BIH, so I had a patient uh, at the weekend. Your team at uh, the have an team were absolutely brilliant as well. And the guys over at Carlisle, uh, who was deteriorating rapidly from vision, right? So they needed an urgent uh, lumbar peritoneal shunt. So that's one which is a quite a common pathway uh, mm. that we get between from urology. Um, so yeah, so CSF disorder is, is in there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Can can we talk about Chordaquina, which I think is like probably one of the most abused referral routes or maybe is, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's also the thing that our like, juniors, students, it's just drummed into everybody, never miss a Coda Aquinas Syndrome. And when I do a lot of undergraduate teaching at Teesside, it, it strikes me that actually, um, personally, I've rarely seen it. Presumably, that's because it all defaults to you. Um, And and secondly, I I feel like our students often don't have a clear handle on what a typical cauda should really look like.
0: So, cauda syndrome, you're quite right, is extremely rare. So, out of all patients with a lumbar pathology, it accounts for 0.003% of all those patients. So, (laughs) it is incredibly rare. If you speak to the lawyers, um, so one of my other things that I've done because I get bored of the evening is I've done a master's in law.
2: Right. So I've,
0: I've, I've spent many time talking to lawyers about this principle and they will quote the instance as one to 2%. But that's one to 2% of patients who are operated on rather than true cord aquinas. Right. The problem with cord acquirers is the litigation. Mm. So, spinal surgery is the second highest area for litigation, only second to obstetrics of course for for obvious reasons and that 's why people get into you know get very concerned up to you about cordquinas because there is a huge litigation problem, but there's also a huge risk to the patient as well. so mm. how would somebody present so by and large to have cordquinas syndrome, you need to pressure cordiquinas so it usually is a result of an acute prolapse disc mm-hmm. in the lumbar spine, mm-hmm. compressed to the chord nerve roots, which in itself can cause causes back pain and leg pain. So you need to have back pain and leg pain to have called syndrome. And it's usually bilateral leg pain rather than unilateral leg pain. But a lot of patients we see in clinics have back pain, leg pain, but they don't have cord syndrome. Mm. And that's because to have chord syndrome, you need cord compression from a scan, but you also need disturbance of sphincters, which problems, disturbance with micturition. They talk about disturbance of bowels, but that is extraordinarily rare, and that's end stages, um, and sensory disturbance around the perineum. So by far, you know, a good history, a good examination, an examination, PR, and perineal sensation, important. Bladder scans are really useful as well, because it looks at a post-void, Volumes because the people are retaining, that's a good indicator. And there's also a big difference between incomplete and complete cord aquina syndrome. So, incomplete cord aquina syndrome occurs when you have compression of the cord aquina with back pain and leg pain, but with a development of sphincter disturbance. So, you're starting to get urinary your hesitancy, you're starting to get abnormalities and flow and sensation of, of passing water you may get a degree of numbness around the perineum. So that's incomplete chord syndrome. Complete chord syndrome is total loss of sphincter disturbance. So you have loss of urinary control. You've got painless urinary retention. At the final stages, you then have a loss of rectal tone.
2: Mm. Now there's
0: also something to really remember and hone in on this is people talk about PR tone. People talk about, well, it seems slightly relaxed. Well, actually the bottom line is, you either have tone or you don't. So for example, an eighty-eight old, old lady with chronic constipation is going to have a lax anal tone. It's not because they've got cord syndrome hmm. It's because they're elderly with chronic constipation. The difference in complete cord syndrome is that they've got no anal tone whatsoever. So, you know, the, the old adage: put your finger in before you put your foot in it. Is really quite true true in here. So, we really need to be called within about 48 hours of the onset of symptoms of sphincter disturbance. It's not the back pain, leg pain, it's sphincter disturbance. And that is, you know, by and large, again, what do the studies say about when you operate from them? And there are two meta analyses, you know, number one data. And what they certainly suggest is should be done within 48 hours. Or preferably sooner on on a patient developing sphincter disturbance. Mm. Uh, there have been arguments over many years as to whether that should be done late at night or the next day, and it again depends on the patient, the morbidities of the patient. Um, you got to remember, you and I worked in an area where we did twenty four hours of work the next day, so mm. operating two o'clock in the morning wasn't the best of a patient, wasn't the best for us either, and the. Um, the nc inquiry i don't know if you remember it from the noughties was certainly quite damning about patients being operated in the middle of the night yeah uh, but certainly in the last 10 years or so people moved to more of a shift system um so if you've got a competent capable registrar um or indeed you know consultants we had a colleague on monday night i think who came in to do a code at midnight because if they're young if they are Uh, developer symptoms you want to try and reverse it and my experience you can reverse sphincter symptoms if you get there quickly enough
1: right how much um, motor weakness should you expect from a a, a fairly typical Coda Aquina because you've talked about uh, like pain and sensory and sphincter what about kind of leg weakness
0: you don't necessarily tend to see it and unfortunately a lot of the leg weakness tends to be pain related in these Mm. situations the other time that I and a lot of my colleagues do, will operate sooner or later is when you have a foot drop. Hmm. Now, again, this is a very controversial area, uh, but certainly in my experience, but I, so with it, I tend to operate, if I can, straight away, if not within the first few weeks, of an onset of foot weakness um, because I have found decent recovery in patients like that. But again, it is, it is controversial.
1: So that's foot drop, but, not in the context of a quina, no, though, isn't it? that's right.
0: But motor weakness with chord equina is usually quite a late sign because mm. it's usually the sensory disturbance that occurs first and motor secondary.
1: Yeah. And I think that's really important, isn't it? Because I think that the thing that frustrates us as neurologists more than uh, anything is the sort of, and I'm sure it frustrates you as well, uh, patients that come in with query called equina kind of protocoled scan, um, which looks obviously at the lumbar spine, sacral areas, it's normal because actually they're presenting with proximal leg weakness and a sensory level at the waist. And if they're examined by somebody who knows what they're doing, they've got increased tone and clonus and extensor planters. And of course, because the symptoms are in the legs, they get the leg scan Mm.
2: uh,
1: and really the lesion's far higher.
2: Yeah.
0: So that's happened uh, about two months ago. We had a patient that was referred to us. Uh, They thought it was a cordyquinone syndrome, had sphincter disturbance and patchy parasthesia. Um, We did an MRI lumbar spine, which did show some changes, but nothing remarkable. Um, So we brought them up to the ward, took a proper history and examination, found them to be a bad tobacco malopath, scanned their neck and found significant cold compression of C56. So as you quite rightly say, it's all about, it really is about history and examination. Mm. And that is key to then working out where you're going with, with the investigations. Because as you know, you know, we weren't always called neurosurgeons. We were first called surgeons of neurology. It was only in the 50s that Penfield changed our names to neurosurgeons simply because of, you know, things had changed. But, you know, history examination is critical to everything we do.
1: Yeah. I feel like you know my kind of standard line for the students is um, you can always scan too low, but you can really never scan too high when it comes to the spine. Mm-hmm. You can really get caught out so easily, can't you, by these kind of high lesions that present with low symptoms? Um, that's really helpful, I think, because I think CODA kind of worries everybody, doesn't it? Mm. Um, uh, and maybe to the detriment of actually understanding what they should be looking out for.
0: Absolutely. And I think because there's so much hysteria surrounding it. I mean, I remember having a conversation with some spinal surgeons not so long ago, uh, debating... The merits of what called Aquinas syndrome actually was, and I do also worry that people are going in a in a, the opposite direction, which is over operating, mm. um, and people call things called Aquinas syndrome just because they're worried about the, the litigation. And unfortunately, you know, we have to recognise the fact that litigation is driving a lot of our practice. Mm. Uh, you know, with the publication of people's mortality morbidity data, and the fact that people, yes, at the moment it's. Uh, vicarious liability so hospitals are sued we're not individually sued Uh, but it won't be long off before we start getting targeted as individuals and as a result I think people are getting operations not because they should do but because of the concerns that they may be sued for a missed diagnosis now there is extremely good evidence out there over the conservative management of large discs and people with the complete absence of sphincter disturbances can be successfully managed without an operation and if you actually looked at look at the long-term data for uh, conservative versus surgical management of a lumbar disc at one year this data goes back 30 years but incredibly there's nothing being brought out since then actually it's 40 years 1980 waiver's paper so incredibly, at one year, patients who have the surgery will have returned back to work faster and will feel better. At year four and at year 10, there's no significant differences in the outcome measures between a operated patient and a conservatively managed patient. So this is not the corticoneal group. This is patients who don't have corticoneal symptoms, but have got a lumbar disc. Mm. And I say this to our juniors all the time. Never be afraid to manage a, a large disk conservatively. Because at the end of the day, when you do an operation, an operation has a 10 to 15% chance of risk. And if you didn't have an operation and something goes drastically wrong, you're then held to court and you're asked, why can you justify why you did the operation? Hmm. It's not going to be a great excuse if you say, oh, it's because I was worried about being sued.
1: One of the things that surprised me from speaking to one of our surgeons down um, a couple of years ago, had a guy who, you know, had a foot drop uh, and pain with a disc, no sphincter, so not really a cauda quina, uh, although I had appropriately safety netted. Um, and um, and I was, so I beetled up to uh, Simon's office and I was like, oh, this guy's foot drop and, you know, big disc and a scan thinking... That it would be the foot drop that would clinch the operation um and came out really with a completely different like totally turned on the head, Simon said, you know you know it's really the neuropathic pain that'll respond to surgery, you know if it was just a foot drop, you know there's evidence that you know actually he'd be fine, conservatively managed, the foot drop will get better in time, type of thing, and I was really kind of my head was spinning at the end of that. Chad, is it, I mean, is that, is that, am I wrong? Have I misremembered the conversation? Because I don't want to do Simon a disservice.
0: Yeah. Simon's a great guy. He's a great spinal surgeon. I've got a huge amount of respect for Simon. I can't make too much comment about, about that case, of, of course. Yeah. But, uh, as I said to you before, it is an extremely controversial area of foot drop.
1: Right, okay. Um,
0: now, I'm not, I mean, I'm a, I'm a surgeon. I've a general surgical practice. I do not consider myself to be a spine specialist but I do do spine work like we all do for, especially yeah. before on the call and elective setting. So as I, as I mentioned before, the evidence that I've seen is that if you operate on a foot drop, a painful foot drop, certainly within the first few weeks to the first few months, the chances of recovery are greater mm-hmm. than if it was done after six months. And certainly in my own practice, and please bear in mind, I cannot make any comment on the case that, that you've... Oh, no, no, uh, no, it
1: wasn't really that. I mean, the, the guy did get operated uh, on, but it was, it was more for the pain, interestingly, that, yeah, that, was, that so, was the thing that pushed Simon And I, I was really kind of interested in that.
0: So absolutely, it, you know, the, the reason for discectomy is to relieve the pain, but it's also to see whether the motor deficit can be reversed as well. Mm-hmm. And certainly in my experience, in my own personal practice, as if they present acutely, I will do a discectomy in order to, to try and relieve the pressure.
1: What about sort of like a painless foot drop, not to kind of, you know, overthink the whole thing, but, yeah. you know, is there a reasonable argument for a watch and wait with that one?
0: So a painless foot drop. No. if a patient initially presented with pain in their leg and developed a foot drop and then the pain went away,
2: mm.
0: it's because the horse has bolted, which basically means that they've had the compression, mm. the nerves are damaged, the compression has relieved itself and we do know that the vast majority of acute does do go away within mm-hmm. the first three to six months. And, but unfortunately the legacy of the neuronal damage is there, which is why the foot weakness. And that's where you get a painless foot drop in that scenario. There is enough, and that should be conservatively managed. There's right. no surgical intervention when it's painless. The other scenario is a completely painless foot drop, which can be due to one of two things. Either local trauma to the common perineal nerve, usually at the fibular head, in which case nerve conduction tests can usually elucidate that. Mm-hmm. Or it's because, and the classic one that we always give our juniors in exams, is because they've got a parasatial lesion, like yeah. an idioma. So that's the other reason why people present with a painless foot drop. And on those points, I'll say to the referring teams, get a nerve conduction test and get a CT scan of the head. And if there's anything on it, let us know and we'll take it from there.
1: Yeah. So you can never scan too high. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Even into the brain. <laughs> okay. That's really helpful. Part. Yeah. <laughs> that's really helpful. Because uh, I think Cod we, we get vexed about. Uh, I think the other thing over my, the course of my training that has surprised me sometimes is the spinal cord compression higher up sort of thing where I'd always... Worried, particularly when I was a medical reg, you'd have a patient come in, maybe known to have a breast cancer or something with metastatic um, disease, and then they come in with, you know, lower limb neurological symptoms, bladder, bowel disturbance, and you think, "Uh oh, and there's always this sort of like, you know, they need a scan tonight, um, or don't they, will they be taken to theatre tonight, if there's something compressing, you know, like, uh, you know, how urgently do they need their scan? What's your so, kind of so take on that?
0: If somebody has got evolving, deteriorating neurology, they need a scan. Hmm. If somebody's had neurology for quite some time, let's say over 48 hours, which is static, then it can wait till the morning. But by and large, if somebody's got deteriorating neurology, they need to be scanned straight away and then discussed discussed on as appropriate.
1: And so like the two in the morning scan, for you know, like... Because it depends where you work, that might be a thing. You get your spinal MRI in the middle of the night. Some places, maybe not.
0: Yeah. So, again, this is part of the GERF National Project for Spines, which is that it is a major problem. It's a a major resource problem that for all our referring hospitals, um, including the larger ones as well, um, don't perform out-of-hours radiology and typically you know you get this phone call at five o'clock on a on a weekday saying we've tried to get this patient on a scanner the list can't cope with it but now closing you're going to to take the patient over and we do and uh, you know doing when i was a lad we're still doing it now and it's a major resource issue because you've got to bring your patient into a bed you then got to get a scan done And then if a scan is negative, you've then got to try and get the patient back to the referring hospital, which, as I'm sure you've experienced yourself, can be a minefield in its own right. You know, there are burdens on uh, hospital transport systems, you know, very often only a handful of ambulance crews on a night time who can't, you know, take patients back to the hospital down the road because they're dealing with some drunk in the middle of Newcastle city centre, you know, there's a, a definite resource issue. So part of a girth spinal project was to basically make the recommendation that all referring hospitals should have access to out-of-hours radiology. Um, And this is nothing new. You know, when I was a house officer, I did a project on vascular access out-of-hours, and that was back in 2000. So none of this is actually new, but unfortunately, it's a resource issue. You know, it's about trying to get the MRIs open 24 hours. But on top of that, it's about having MRI technicians to be able to staff them than having the radiologist who can read and interpret MRI scans to be able to, you know, to protocol them, to be able to interpret them and then be able to let us know. It would help our service hugely. It would also help the neurology service as well, I suspect, hugely. Uh, but at the moment, the NHS isn't quite there and there's a major resource problem for the district Hospital to do it. But unfortunately, it's also a major resource problem for us because we're taking up an awful lot of beds for query cord aquiners which don't need to come anywhere close to us. But mm. a two o'clock in the morning scan is a real thing.
2: Yeah. And
0: coming at four o'clock in the morning to do an operation is a real thing because we will do it. If it's evolving secure and needs to be done, we will take care of it.
2: But so we need the
1: scans. I mean, that's definitely worth knowing because I think in my head, I've always had this sort of idea that you'd say, well, okay, you know, even if you had your 2 a.m. scan, they'd still be waiting till 8 a.m. for an intervention um and maybe actually uh, you know maybe that is true but maybe at least you could hit the ground running at 8 a.m knowing there what is- you were going to be doing as opposed to trying to get the scan at 8 a.m and then it's 4 p.m before you're in theater
0: so one of the difficulties about saying to other hospitals or even to our own hospital you know we're, we're not perfect right? any such imagination is right let's leave it till the next morning and let's get a scan and we'll take it from there so, what happens? The radiographer comes in at eight o'clock in the morning. They have a list. We've got a full of electors. Before you know it's nine, 10, 11 o'clock, could be 12 o'clock before the scan happens. Then, halfway through the day, you'll then get a call to say this patient's got a large gorda a disc. You tell yourself, damn, you know, this patient's waiting more than 24 hours. Mm. What do you do? And I've been in this situation before. And I've brought a patient over at two o'clock in the afternoon once. i take him them straight to the so um, And that's another problem about leaving until the next morning is that as a the day then goes on, things just get pushed further and further and further. Um, and before you know it, you could have missed your your opportunity to operate.
1: That's interesting. I think that is really helpful. I think the last thing, I want to move on from spines in a minute, but I'm just, I'm just thinking about all the neurosurgical things that have scarred me over the years that maybe our oh, juniors dear. can, can <laughs> learn from. No, no, not in a bad way. Um, but, I, you know, maybe our juniors can learn from. I think I've been caught out a few times with discitis and um paraspinal abscess. Um particularly the evolution of scan changes um over time. So like the first scan maybe not showing it and the second scan, you know, a week later in this ca- kind of that setting is have you any sort of hot tips for the sort of discitis presentation that so that A that our our medical students and junior doctors will actually think about discitis as a diagnosis ever. Uh, and B, you know, any kind of pitfalls to avoid in, in, in scans? Yeah. I
0: mean, generally speaking, these patients present with a pyrexia with, mm-hmm. you know, when people then start doing blood cultures, urine cultures, chest x-ray, don't find a thing. And the patient then says, well, I've got really bad back pain, Doc. Uh, at which point, when somebody decides to scan the back and they've got this rip-roaring, discitis or, 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 or Um, A lot of these things can be managed conservatively. A lot of these things can be diagnosed by a CT guided aspiration in order to get cultures. So, the only time surgery is required, and to be fair, you know, our spinal orthopedic surgeons are now taking these patients over. Um, So, the only time surgery is required is if there's a collection that's causing compression of the Mm -hmm. nerves, uh, or if you've got loss of, you've got vertebral body collapse because of quite chronic bad discitis. In which case these patients need fixing, but well, they usually get monitored, they kept bed rest and they get fixed at a point when it's safe to do so. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that can be done by me- medical teams beforehand. Uh, by and large, in the times that we used to manage them, we used to get ID, infectious diseases involved at an early stage
2: mm. uh,
0: because getting the bug is critical. Um, but as I say, the only time that surgery is really required is if there's a neurological compromise or there's a collapse which requires stabilisation. But again, you know, our spinal teams have been fantastic and they take those things on these days.
1: Yeah, I mean, the tricky tricky one I had was uh, somebody who was on the uh, general surgical ward with, quote-unquote, pain, which was really, you know, ridiculous, dermatomal kind of pain from a discitis, with, mm-hmm. a you know, staph, sepsis and a high CRP, young person. Um, and, you know... Ultrasound normal, CT abdomen normal, you know, the very sort of standard general surgical abdo pain sort of stuff, no, nothing in the gallbladder, um, but the first MRI was normal. And so, you know, I my confidence in a discitis diagnosis was knocked by that. Um, now, he got a couple of weeks of antibiotics anyway, and actually then a follow-up scan was showed the discitis. But, you know, that was the first time where I really then started to doubt that the MRI was my friend. Uh, for a thing like discitis so I, th- so I think my 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 hot top tip for juniors is to be mindful of MRI isn't always there for you you know diagnostically for that sort of diagnosis anyway
0: yeah no absolutely but again it hones into the whole idea of, of our clinical skills you know about history the examination it's working your way through each system at a time um, and you know I fully accept that as neurosurgeons get it easy you know by the time we get referred a patient. The medics have worked them up beautifully for us, uh, but it really is about that history of examination.
1: Hmm. Can we go on a little bit? I want to talk about one other neurosurgical emergency, and then I want to talk about neuro oncology a wee bit. Um, so I want to talk about like vascular emergencies, um, like subarach and those sorts of things. And my, um, my genuine question is, who should manage subarachs?
0: Right, so, this is an interesting <laughs> one. So, I'm sure you're aware in Germany and most of Europe, the neurologists do. Um, and in fact, neurosurgeons don't get take too much part in this. Now, subarachnoids is a very good example of how neurosurgery has evolved and to the detriment of the specialty, but perhaps for the benefit, well, is for the benefit of patients. So... Mm. Uh, when I started my ritual training in 2006, that was probably getting towards the end of people, of neurosurgical trainees, clipping aneurysms all the time. And this is on the, um, the back of various trials at that stage, the ISAT trial in particular, which at that stage suggested that people who are embolized do better than people who have claniotopies. And I think data has evolved since that period of time claniotopies have become safer, claniotopies are now done by consultants rather than registrars, which is what plagued the ISAT data of course was that it was done by registrars in the middle of the night whereas and coil was done by consultants in the light of day. So the question then becomes well if, neuro, if interventional neuroradiologists are, are doing the coiling, should they be managing it? But there's also surgical sequela from the subarachnoid such as hydrocephalus which is what we we obviously get involved with. So I think it has to be joint management. I don't think it's at the point where necessarily neurologists need to do it, like in the German system. Um, but I do think neurosurgery combined with interventional neuroradiology is the best way forward.
1: What would you say the proportion of. Because I'm sort of thinking about your typical kind of acute headache query, subarach kind of presentation and they mostly come into general medicine and then they'll have the sort of CTLP kind of algorithm. Um, and I guess then, you know, proportion of those, so the CT might show frank blood and they're obviously always going to come your way, aren't they? Um, or the way, yeah, the way of a neuroscience department. Um, there's then the folk who scans okay, but have xanthochromia in their CSF um and then there's this you know the negative ones who get booted out the door uh, regardless of what else might be causing their head <laughs> um but um not necessarily,
0: not necessarily because if somebody's got a good history then actually you know doing a, a decent cta or a against a case-by-case basis because mm. you know some of our i and our guys have what have asked for patients to be brought over to do dsa's um people have no blood at all in the system can have gradient echo mris and have looked to see if there's any blood products there um but it is really is a case-by-case case because somebody with a very good history could have it missed on a ct or, or a lung puncture
1: oh don't tell me that no don't tell me that. i can't cope with that <laughs> well,
0: can we sometimes but you know <laughs> we do what we have to do yeah. it's, it's, about, it's about the patient it's about you know, understanding what's actually gone on with that patient. Does the symptoms fit? Um, And, you know, quite often having, you know, I had one or two patients at the weekend where I asked for a neurology opinion and it worked out really nicely to have that additional opinion as well. Mm. Um, And, you know, it's about working in teams.
1: What proportion, I mean, I I imagine, and I'm, I'm just kind of going from basic principles, if you present with CT positive arachnoid blood, Subarachnoid blood. Um, you know, the, I, I imagine those guys are more likely to have an aneurysm than the Xanthochromia, CT negative, Xanthochromia positive people are. Is that, I mean, is that? Well, I, I, that don't, I
0: don't know the stats, but I will say this I have plenty of patients who I see in clinic who have a DSA, a CT and a DSA negative angio. There's also a small proportion of patients who have perimetric bleeds. Which we know is Venus, your Venus, uh, but an Amazon won't be found either. Now, I by and large will follow those patients up for about 18 months and get a scan done at that stage, and nothing's evolved then I will call it a day. But I've come across a couple patients, uh, and probably two to be fair, who presented with a bleed, nothing was found. Whoever looked after them did a MRI in a year's time, didn't find anything. And they then come back to you years later with a massive tumour in their head. Hmm. Now, whether that tumour is de novo, has just happened spontaneously subsequent to that, it's difficult to say. Uh, But not every patient who has blood in the head will necessarily be due to an aneurysm.
1: Hmm. I suppose what I was kind of wondering about was, you know, where are are there examples of other I uh, you i guess it kind of in mainland europe you're saying there are examples of other models where the bulk of it is is not surgically managed and the only ones that would come a surgeon's way would then be the ones where the cta or the mra was you know would give you something to work with as a yeah. surgeon do you see what i mean and i'm just curious about that. So, yeah, that so, the medical management of subarach is kind yeah, of that's yeah. not something we know much about as neurologists in the uk
0: yeah so uh, the patient pathway isn't perfect by any means. So any suspected diagnosis will come our way. Uh, we'll then, you know, have them on our wards for the INR guys to, to pine over to get a DSA. If there's nothing further on it, we'll then speak to them and say, do you want to have a delayed DSA? Um, and then, you know, if nothing comes back, they essentially get rehabilitated on the ward and then home. So they don't actually, and maybe this is more of that, and to be honest with you, you know, again, vascular is done by a select group now rather than all of us. Uh, maybe that's more that needs to be looked into is, you know, who then looks after his patients. I, you know, I can imagine if I had a discussion with my neurology colleagues at the RVI and said, right, can you take over all the subarachnoid negative? They says, we'll probably just look at me going on your bike, mate. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? So, so yeah. the difference is then who looks after it. Now you, you can't then go back to a physician, a general physician, and say, right, you know, sent this patient to a social referral center, they've got a subarachnoid hemorrhage, um, but they don't have any, any evidence on it. Can you now please take this patient and work them up? And again, quite rightly, they'll look at me and say, on your bike, mate, because it's about, you know, it's bad expertise. Mm. And I suspect that's probably where the European system probably works better, is that when neurologist will then follow these patients up and take them on and investigate them. Because we've also seen non subarachnoid subrachnoid vasospasm, where is the syndrome associated with that? Mm. Uh, which again is very well managed by neurologists when it's been detected, uh, but I suspect there's a huge cohort of patients who are aneurysm negative, who probably are left in the wilderness, um, and you know this is something that does probably needs to be looked at in the long term.
1: Yeah, and I mean just medically, like what does one do? I mean I'm like thinking kind of nifedipine, is <laughs> that's all I know.
0: <laughs> so nifedipine was probably. I don't know if you know much about the BAND study from 1989, 87, something like that. Um, there's no great evidence to support it. We do it because we've always done it. Um, and as soon as we know that somebody is DSA negative, we stop the Um And as you know, there's available evidence to, to support its use. The problem with neurosurgery, as you know, come back to what I said earlier, it's still a specialty in its infancy. Um, and there's very little evidence that we have at the moment, but it's, some of that does need to accumulate over time. Now, there's bad evidence, and there's good evidence, and there's negative evidence. Um, but for in the body pain in particular, we don't use it if they're negative. We only use it if they're positive, but for 21 days. Um, and, and what's the yeah.
1: rationale? Sorry, I don't really understand the rationale between giving people with an aneurysm Nimodipine, but giving people with no azure aneurysm well did they get anything or not? no? no huh.
0: because the reason for the is because it's a calcium type move vessel relaxation therefore with the aneurysmal associated vasospasm the theoretical idea is whether it relaxes that and reduces the risk of vasospasm but as i as we were just talking about before you can still get non aneurysmal subarachnoid vasospasm. Mm. So, you know, and as I say, you know, in a few cases that that's been picked up, the neurologists have been absolutely brilliant and taking those over and and managing things. But a lot of these things is about just time, keeping an eye on them, keeping them fluid hydrated, making sure all the sodiums are fine. Um, And a lot of them will just settle time. And to be fair, most patients would present before they got discharged. Um, So it's not a perfect system. No, 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 I means a bad system.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Let's, t- I want to talk about um neuro oncology a bit because I know that's your thing, and um, we can't very well take up like over an hour of your evening and not del- <laughs> delve into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you know, as neurologists, I think we we pick up a lot of patients obviously on scam sometimes expecting to find stuff though or they present with it like you know a focal seizure and you, your heart sinks and you, you know what this is going to be um so you know we also pick up a lot of people by accident don't we scanning them for their you know primary headache disorders <laughs> and then going oh no um <laughs> i found a thing um what what should a neurologist do you think what should a neurologist know about Tumors. What would be helpful for us to know? I think the bottom line is, at- yeah.
0: So I've seen a lot of patients who have had scans brought in the past as incidental lesions who then come back a few years later with, with tumours that have arisen. Um, and I think the bottom line is, if there's any doubt whatsoever, just put it into the neuron called GMDT. Mm. By and large, if it's a purely incidental lesion, you know, some, some cold space or something like that, we'll just keep an eye on it but it's under the governance of the new oncology MDT in that scenario. If it is suspicious lesion, then what I tend to do, and again, there's only probably a handful of us in the world who do this, is I'll do an MR spec, MR perfusion to look at the characteristics of it, um, and then do a biopsy if that was required, and then further management is dependent on on what that comes back as. But I think the bottom line is, if in doubt, bring it to the MDT. Uh, Because at least that way, it can be, closely monitored, if nothing else. And I've got a lot of patients like that who I keep an eye on. Uh, patients like it because they know that, you know, something's been done. Um, but it also means that if things do change, we can catch it early rather than
1: late. Hmm. I mean, with the, with the sort of primary CNS tumours, I suppose the one that mostly we see is, is a kind of glioblastoma kind of presentation, which... Um, and then we sort of lose sight of these patients, because obviously we sort of see them with their seizure, investigate, go, all right, OK, over to you guys. And we do, there's a sort of a deficit in my knowledge base then about what happens to that patient. Uh, and obviously, if they survive, uh, but have epilepsy, they come back to us a bit you know, because, you know, we'll kind of follow through on the kind of... Because we've got manage epilepsy, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> sure we got Kefra. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if it doesn't begin with L, don't use it. That's the that's the anti-epileptic guide <laughs> for the UK. Lamotrigine, lacosamide, and lef-trustle. um But, um, so j- just that, you know, how do you then, you know, what are the features that say it's, you know, a GBM versus a lower grade uh, glioma. You know, what are what are the sort of treatment options currently? 2020 treatment options, COVID permitting.
0: So, things have changed a, a lot over the years, and it's going. It's, it is moving towards the right direction. So a lot of classifications are based on immunohistochemistry. So somebody looking under a microscope and going, right, this is a grade two diffuse astrocytoma, grade three anaplastic or grade four glioblastoma. But we also know that there is a inter-observational variability of about 10% in terms of that. We know that low grades tend to be more discrete. We know that they don't enhance upward contrast uh, so they, and they won't have mass effect. And by and large, a low grade present as a seizure. Uh, or, focal neurological deficit. Whereas a higher grade will be a more aggressive uh, pathology, so you have contrast enhancement. So, you'll see probably areas of necrosis where it's burnt out its blood supply and areas of fulminant vascularity as well. But you'll also see a lot of mass effect, so a lot of movement on there. Now, what happened about 2016 was people started becoming more interested in the, on, in, into the molecular genetics of markers of, of gliomas. And the, the two main areas are IDH mutations and 1P90Q in the low grades. And there are also other molecular uh, markers as well. And what these do is they tell you what kind of a tumor they actually are. They also tell you how they're going to behave and how they're going to respond to chemo and radiotherapy as well. So it's a good prognostic indicator on top of that. It also means that when the pathologist gets a specimen in the classic old system, they'll just take a sample from whatever they had and give you a diagnosis based on that. Whereas the thing about genetics is the genetics are going to be uniform throughout a tissue sample. So you're not going to get the change the, the variability you get under a microscope when you look at genetic analysis. So in terms of, you know, presentations, you talked about, well, you know, I talked about the patients who presented with epilepsy and with um, focal deficit, but I've got a huge beer in my bonnet about the natural history of gliomas and in particular, low-grade gliomas. Um, the evidence really suggests that, you know, you should do maximal safe resections as best you can and then depending on what the genetics comes back is, as, you can either watch and wait or you can give early radiotherapy. But I have a hypothesis that the ones we're seeing, the low grades, are transforming. There's something about them that is changing within their architecture to trigger a seizure. There's something about them that's changing in their way they're behaving, which is causing focal neurological deficit, which isn't the true characteristic of a benign disease,
2: Mm. but
0: is a characteristic of something that's transforming. So my argument, is that the low grades that we are seeing are intermediate grades? So these are low grades which are in the process of transforming to a high grade
1: entities. And by seeing you so mean, sorry, sir, I to interrupt. But by seeing you mean you were seeing them because they're symptomatic. Yes. Right.
0: So there is a subset what we call incidental low grade glomas, which are less than ten percent of all low grade gliomas. So these patients. If you're a purist like me, these are patients who've presented because of some completely different reason. So, for example, we have a lot of patients who have been referred to as by the research MRI banks hmm. um, because of various studies that are happening. And as a result, they get a scan. They found a, a tumor. They then get sent to us. Or there's a group of people who've been scanned for something else. They've had a fall or some other reason. So, again, these are patients who've been found incidentally. Now, what we're trying to do is look at how these differ to the symptomatic low grades. So we're doing molecular profiling and we're also looking at overall survival and progression free survival in patients that undergo surgery as well in that group. So we're working with a group in Europe at the moment to try and combine our data because it is a small number uh, to see whether actually we don't really know the natural history and perhaps we're dealing with a different entity altogether. Um, It's extremely controversial, um, but that's my personal take on it. You've heard it from me.
1: Mm -hmm, It's interesting.
0: There's there's a process occurring in the ones which present because of symptoms. Um, And I think we need to truly understand that. And I think we need to understand whether there is a subset of truly incidentals, Mm-hmm. We need to understand what the impact of that is in terms of qualities, in terms of you know the cost effectiveness of, of being able to deal with those, and then we need to ask: well, if that's the case, do we need to do some kind of surveillance? Do we need to find someone to test that can then can detect these? And then what do we do? Do we do we operate on them early? Do we keep an eye on them? Do we wait till they transform? Because we know that a low grade overall survival is you know anywhere between three to eight eight years roughly, so it's not huge. But I still think we're seeing a point in their natural history sometime after they actually occurred. And Mm. that's what I'm trying to study at the moment.
1: What's what's looking promising? Because I think, you know, traditionally as neurologists, we have a real sort of heart sink around primary tumours. We, you know, we send them off to you, but we feel often very glum about that um are there kind of new things happening surgically or or in terms of kind of like de- delivering chemotherapy agents directly into the brain or like uh, what's 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 got you interested or excited at the minute s- next five ten years stuff real world
0: um i wish a lot of has changed in terms of overall survival, survival but it still hasn't what we're trying to do is buy months here and there Mm -hmm. So I'm doing a feasibility trial at the moment called the FLAGS trial, which looks at the use of using 5-ALA. It's something that we use intraoperatively. We use a special filter and a microscope and helps us visualize uh, brain tumor tissue uh, compared to normal tissue. And what the evidence suggests is that you get greater reception margins in those patients who have 5-ALA. So we're doing a trial at the moment because the original trial was underpowered. And we wanted to see if we can dry, try and do a, a larger trial to see whether actually there would be difference in over survival we're not quite there yet one of the other things that we're we're doing one of the things that i do is minimal access surgery using being able to use smaller craniotopies day case surgeries as well are becoming quite fashionable although i'm not a huge huge fan of those um, and then brachytherapy putting access devices into t- tumour areas uh, to deliver chemotherapy directly into the tumour cavity. Now, I have just had a really interesting research meeting this morning with some guys from the university, uh, looking at being able to use PETMRI to try and characterise brain tumours, because it, it's a bit like vascular surgery. Vascular surgery was helped by neurosurgeons, now helped by interventional radiologists. I know I'm talking myself out of a job here, but I would very much like in 20 years time, for surgery only to be reserved for people who've missed a boat, have got mass effect and that actually a biopsy can be instead done by a decent pet MRI machine. And then the treatment can then be given without ever the need of a surgeon. Mm. That is where I really think the future lies. You know, it's about trying to profile them, trying to get sensitivities of, of scans to the point where you can make a diagnosis without an operation and this is the kind of work that I'm doing at the moment in Newcastle is to to try and see if we can use a better MRI to be able to help us with that.
1: Okay, that's really interesting. I um, wanted to talk a little bit about metastatic disease in the brain, um, because one of the things that's changed massively since I was a student, you know, if you had, a, if you had liver mets, game over. And, you know, now people will resect bits of liver and you know if you've got like even two or three metastases in your liver then maybe have a go at that um and the same deal when like i'm sure when we were training it was like you know well if if a cancer has metastasized to the brain that's it um that doesn't seem to be the case anymore and sort yeah. of metectomies and things are, are are not uncommon what's uh you know how much of how much of that is your caseload so
0: what has really helped and what's really evolved is the use of stereotactic radiosurgery. surgery. So for patients with a limited number of metastatic lesions, which is less than three centimeters, but they, to be honest, with you now they look at overall volume, they can give stereotactic radiosurgery surgery treatment to help try and stabilize disease and then let the systemic treatment work.
2: Mm.
0: So the time that we get involved, uh, is, First of all, if there's no known primary, so they need histological diagnosis. Secondly, if you've got a single lesion, which is large and causing mass effect. Thirdly, if you've got a small lesion with a huge amount of edema, uh, because SRS stage of radio surgery causes swelling. Mm. So if you already have swelling, it's going to make the swelling worse. So we're asked to then take those small lesions out in order that they can give SRS treatment to that. And the final reason is there's some kind of structured pathology. So, for example, it was a post-fossal met, and you had hydrocephalus as a result of it, we would then be asked to obviously deal with the post-fossal met in order that they can relieve the hydrocephalus and then get on with the systemic treatment and SRS treatment for whatever's left in the brain. So things have evolved quite nicely. I think we're seeing more and more mets, and I think that's really on the back of the fact that treatment for primary systemic tumours has improved so much that they've managed to treat that quite successfully. But what we're seeing are the seedings of those tumours to the rest Mm. of the body, particularly to the brain, which we're then having to deal with five, ten years later.
1: Yeah, and I think we've seen, as neurologists, an increase in things like carcinomatous meningitis for probably for similar reasons. You know, there's kind of suppression of the systemic disease really, really effectively, but there's escape of the disease centrally. Yeah. Yeah. you know, and Obviously, that's a, a pretty grim thing for us. But it sounds like you have things to offer for patients with fairly circumscribed metastatic disease. Um, yes, I
0: mean, if it's leptomeningeal disease, then unfortunately it is, it's too far for, for surgical intervention. Uh, but, you know, given what we're saying in terms of different points, in terms of if it's a single lesion, because mass massive, but needs for histological diagnosis. There are things that we can do to try and help. And the way that SRS treatment is going, it's doing wonders in terms of treating small, few numbers or metastatic disease within the brain. And then that gives enough time for the symptom disease to take on as options to, mm. to help with the patient's Sorry,
1: Very interesting. So I, I hadn't really thought of the idea that the oncologist would be coming to you for the tissue diagnosis. <laughs> you yeah, know, absolutely cannot happen. Absolutely yeah. cannot
0: happen. Uh, but you know again it's about working in teams so we're very lucky we've got three great clinical oncologists that we work with um, they speak on a regular basis with any other oncologists in terms of the primary disease we'll then make a decision together as to how to proceed uh, but you know as we know there's things up to about 20% no slightly less 11% isn't it of metastatic tumours present without a primary being identified um, so the numbers aren't are that small and there are oncologists who are oncologists of unknown primaries. Mm -hmm. Um, so that specialty does exist. Um, and sometimes, you know, we will find a tumor, uh, which not be found anywhere else. We, and we still won't necessarily have a final diagnosis, but then we'll hand it over to the CUP docs who will then take it on from there. So, you know, a lot of what we do is about trying to get a diagnosis, is about trying to relieve any mass effect and then it's about getting them to the right people which is the oncologist you know we actually do take patients back you know i've done redo operations in both primary and metastatic disease um and thankfully you know gone on the days when people used to just walk away from this stuff hmm. uh, but it's about getting people the right people and the oncologists provide an absolutely fantastic service
1: yeah that's really interesting i mean there's there's lots of other stuff we could talk about um and It's almost like what we need to do is leave some of that for another time, perhaps. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to me be back, surely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surely not. My, yeah, you know, you, we might drag you kicking and screaming back for for because um, w- one of the things we haven't talked about, which we do, which is for another top time, really, is is like shunts and idiopathic intracranial hypertension and. LP versus VP shunt versus like that. Cause I find that really tricky and I've had yeah. several an NPH and I've I had several cases in the last couple of weeks that have really vexed me. So I think that's, but that's, um, that's worthy of focus in its own right. I think. So we might draw to a close there, Suresh. Uh, thank you very much for your time this evening. But, uh, the last thing, like we've done this with most people, everybody really that's done the podcast, which was like a sort of, um, advice to your younger self moment, that sort of time capsule kind of you know like if you could if you could speak through the sands of time to your first year registrar self with like some sage wisdom from that you've learned the hard way what yeah. would you what would you tell yourself now?
0: I think Claire, I think it was Claire Gerard. Um, I, I love this quote of hers. I think it's from BMJ a couple of years ago which she, when she was asked what she would say to a young self, she responded, brace yourself. You're in for one hell of a ride.
1: Mm. (laughs) So so no sage advice, just like, you know, just batten down the hatches, folks. Here we go. (laughs)
0: At at the end of the day, you know, there's a variety of where you can approach things. Um, Some people have very busy lives. Some people have not so busy lives. But it's about being satisfied when you get yourself home. Mm. Um, For me, it's really about the intellectual stimulation. um, And it's fascinating. But what I find really brilliant is is the team working. Um, And, you know, in terms of a neurology, neurosurgery interplay at the RVI, I I, I can't, I mean, I don't know about how it works at James Cook, but certainly at the RVI, the the working together is, is phenomenal. You know, I'll quite often have, you know, Um, Amal, Shannon, any of those guys come into my office and we'll talk about, you know, Achilles, that's done a few recently, about really interesting cases. I got invited to the inflammatory MDT that has, that occurs at the RVI room full of infantry uh, neurology experts. Um, And, you know, I think gone are the days when we all were islands to ourselves. I think things work so much better now that we work as teams.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, I mean when when we have these kind of like tips to your younger self, I think um, often makes me think what I'd say, but uh, the one of the things that I think is a huge strength of any NHS system I've ever worked at is 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 the kind of human factor. Um, or like building relationships that's something you do as maybe more as a consultant than than as a, a registrar yeah. um, but you de- you need your colleagues and you need you need to build relationships and you need to not be an arsehole um, you know <laughs> you know, without wishing to be crude about it yeah you know there's the, you know because the, you know if you if you if you annoy people uh, you know from your the height of your ivory tower they're not there for you when you need them for this patient mm. type of thing. And I think people lose sight of that. We you know, we get kind of have these kind of specialist directions we take, but really we still need to reach out, don't we? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very good. Well, that's. A, I think that's a really nice place to leave it, Suresh. Um, Thank you so much for all your um, world wisdom. Um <laughs> <laughs> Suresh, I'll let you get back to your – I hope that's a Weilam beer, is it, that you're um, – it's actually juice. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's all right. It's been a long week, and all I wanted to have
0: on a go home style was some soft drinks. <laughs> wow.
1: Well, I, I've, 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 I have become uh, addicted to drinking hot squash, like uh, some sort of s- purdy six year old. Uh, so yeah I, I, I definitely feel that this, the, the, the squash the squash vibe is strong with me too we're allowed to have <laughs> our simple pleasures aren't we absolutely absolutely well look I'll let you get back to your squash and the rest of your evening and uh, hopefully one of these days we'll get to meet up in person Sir Ash. perfect thanks you really appreciate it yeah, take all care the best. you look after bye, bye. bye everyone bye. and that's the show we may have stumbled upon the secret of happiness in life it's living in the northeast doing an insanely complicated job and having ready access to orange squash. Other squash flavours are available. Hope you found it helpful. You can find more Neurology Nuggets at the teasneuro.org website. Join us next time wherever you get your podcasts. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy and stay hydrated.